Yes, so today's Bible reading is uh, Philippians chapter 1, which is um, on, if you've got one of the Church Black Bibles, on page 1822. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on into completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart, and whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ, Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does that matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether by, from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in this body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you, Again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, 
since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Well, thank you so much, Dan, for that reading. Um, On your seats there is a fridge magnet, uh, which you can put on your fridge. Isn't that exciting? With the current series on it, there you are, Joy, uh, in Philippians, and it'll tell you which passage to read ahead to. Uh, By the way, speaking of reading, there is a box of Bibles down in the middle. If you don't have a Bible, and I'd like everyone to have a Bible open on either an app or a physical book, they're just there. Some helpful person, I'm sure, is about to run around and offer them. Thank you, Phil. That'd be great. Um, and also, uh, out on the tables somewhere aha, are these little invite cards for this current sermon series. So they are to stick in your wallet or your phone, to have in your car, so that you can invite people to church for the current sermon series. And it's got the address and our website and details on the back and the sermon series on the front. So that's there for you to invite someone, see if you can. Okay, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much that we can come to your word now and still ourselves, and this is a great privilege. Father, which, wherever we are at in our own lives, please speak into our lives because we want them to be shaped. Um, left alone, we, are, we kind of drift. And we want to be steered and we want to be shaped and we want to be fed by you. So we ask that you would do it this morning, and we trust that you will. And we ask it in the name of Jesus, our mighty Lord, who gives us his spirit so that we can understand and follow you. Amen. Okay, well, you may not have noticed, yesterday marked the end of winter. Hooray! All right. This was a God's reminder to us again, as it happens every year, that all winters do come to an end. Life won't always stay bleak. And for us as a church, it seems to me that it's timely, therefore, to speak about joy. Do you remember joy? Do you? Some of us experience it. Some of us live it. But for some of us, it's been a while. Grief, depression, maybe the struggle of the last couple of years. It's time to talk about joy. Um, Philippians is a letter of joy. The Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter, prays with joy. He expresses joy in the face of hardship. He continues to rejoice when things are hard. He faces the future with joy. He makes decisions so that other Christians will experience joy. Joy is a very Christian emotion. Last year, I watched the AFL Grand Final with my son-in-law, Jonathan, who, bless his little heart, all his life has been a faithful, diehard Richmond supporter, which yielded zero results all his life until last year when his team, of course, went into the premiership with, would you believe it, the Adelaide Crows. And I was there in the room as he was watching it. He in his Tigers gear, surrounded by friends in all their Crows gear. And as the game went on, the Crows people became more and more subdued and Johnny got louder and louder and louder. Now, I was there on the day that he proposed to my daughter. That was a good day in his life. I was there on the day that he got married. That was a good day in his life. I have never seen him like he was on this day. I can tell you, he was yelling himself hoarse. There was one point he was on his hands and knees in front of the telly, banging the ground with every limb that he had, yelling, Dusty, 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 you know, about the guy who won the Brownlow medal, you know, who's the hero of his team. When the full-time horn sounded, 
There was no stopping him in that house. This was pure, expressed, unadulterated joy, right? Apologies if you're a Crow supporter and I've just reopened a wound. Um, <laughs> close it now. Uh, you know, but I, it, you get the point. Joy is deep delight you experience of being part of a winning team, all right? Now, it's a delight that you can share with other team members because the one on whose side you're on, that one has triumphed. And you exult in their victory. More than that, actually, you share in it. You share in it. Because they've triumphed, you've triumphed as well. Uh, Now, that definition of joy, it's not a technical definition. You won't find it in a dictionary, but it's a Christian definition because it comes from the gospel. The gospel isn't a Christian word. The gospel was a secular word. So in the ancient world, it was used to describe news of victory. In 490 BC, Pheidippides, who was a Greek runner, he ran the first marathon. He ran 75 miles from the plains of of Marathon to Sparta to ask the Spartans for a help in a war that the Athenians were raging with the Persians. No luck, because the Spartans were already uh, celebrating some religious festival. So then Pheidippides ran 75 miles back to find that the battle was in full fury. And then when it was all over, he ran another 22 miles to Athens to announce his gospel to the city elders. And it was one word, victory. And then he fell down dead. That wasn't a victory, but the, the, you know, the announcement of the victory of the win was. The gospel is news of great victory. It's news that's big. It's not just, oh, I've got a new car, or I found a new car spot, or look at my new jacket. It's big news. It's news of a victory that has implications for nations. It's one thing for our footy team to win and to be swept up in that victory, but it is an entirely different thing altogether to be swept up in the victory of the Son of God over sin and judgment and death. And if you believe in Jesus, you are swept up in that victory. You have cause for great joy. In Philippians, Paul tells us, by knowing Christ, we are pronounced by God, our judge, as completely right with him. We have confidence in whatever happens, whether by life or by death, that things will work out. In Christ, we have citizenship in heaven. In Christ, we have a sure hope of resurrection. Not not the wealthiest person in all the world who doesn't believe in Jesus has the riches we have. In Christ, you have the secret of contentment in this life. Knowing Christ is therefore a deep cause for joy. And that's why Christians are different. That's why they're joyful. I didn't know that the first time that I went into a church, but I saw that Christians had something that I didn't have. And I wanted it. And I kept going until I found out what it was about. They had joy because they knew Christ. And I have to say that it was this letter, the letter of Philippians, which has shaped me in my Christian life more than any other book in the Bible. The reason is that in my third year of uni, I was running a Bible uh, study for other students and I threw down the gauntlet to the members of my group and I I challenged them to to memorise the whole book. Uh, one verse a day. Now, you can fit the book of Philippians photocopied on two sides of an A4. So I just kept that 
folded up in my pocket and every time I walked somewhere I pulled it out and I memorised it. It wasn't that I just got the words right in my head. After a while you work out why they are there and why does one bit follow the other and then after a while you kind of sit in Paul's head and I sat in his thinking for a whole year and then I learnt what made him tick and I discovered the source of his joy. That's why this book, more than any other, has shaped me in my Christian life. But of course, it takes some reflection on this to understand. It doesn't just happen like that. You've got to sit in it. Now, it does take reflection because on face value, you could read this book and you could pass Paul off as, a deluded, as the deluded ravings of a masochistic martyr. You know, He's in prison. He's in Rome, simply because of what he's been preaching. He's suffering in chains And he's almost dead. Now, you need to understand Roman prisons, they're not the five-star thing that we have here where people are exercised and fed and they have access to education and television, right? Roman prisons are not like that. Most of them were underground. They had no natural light. They had no natural ventilation. They were rat-infested. They were squalid. To make matters worse, Roman prisoners were not fed or watered. That meant if you did not have someone coming in and visiting you to bring you water and food and perhaps some medicine, you wouldn't last long. It was a hellhole where you went to die. And Paul is there in such a prison, can you imagine it, a squalid hellhole. He's staring death in the face and strangely he's joyful. (laughs) What? I mean, you read this, this letter where he's writing from, it's hard to bring him down. You've got to say either he's raving mad or he's deluded you know, this is a masochistic martyr who delights in pain. What's going on? Or perhaps he knows a joy that's very deep, that's actually deeper than the hole that he's in, a joy which surpasses hardship. If you're someone who's been attracted to this joy but you've never experienced it, Philippians is a letter for you. If you've known this joy but you've lost it and you long for it once again, If you feel like you're stuck in Good Friday and not Easter Sunday, if you feel like you're going through the Christian life with a handbrake on, Philippians is for you. In these opening verses, Paul speaks openly about his experience of joy and his reasons for joy. He experiences joy because of them, the Philippians. He experiences joy because of what's happening to him, could you believe it? And he experiences joy because of what will happen to him. But underneath all that is kind of the big reason. He knows Christ and therefore he's a winner. And in fact, not just him, but everyone else who believes in Jesus, they share together in the victory that Jesus has won. This is very deep and this surpasses everything. And that's why, first of all, he says he has joy because of the Philippians, them. Verse 3, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Now why? Because of your partnership in the gospel. That word partnership is the word koinonia, which we can translate also fellowship. The word fellowship in Christian circles has come to mean a certain thing. It means kind of enjoying Christian relationship around a cup of tea or something like that. It actually has a much bigger uh, sense. It is 
Work or labour in the gospel. That's fellowship in the gospel, when you work hard in the gospel. Paul has had this with the Philippians from the first day until now, so that from the very first, when he told them about Jesus, shared the good news, and they trusted him, they, like him, have been labouring to try and tell other people about Jesus. That partnership in the gospel gives Paul joy. And so every time he remembers them labouring along, he gives thanks to God for them. And I think for us, this is also a great basis for joy. Here, isn't it? There are a lot of people who labour very hard in the gospel all throughout the week. Mondays, you've got the Mainly Music team here, right? Now, they turn up every week trying to build bridges to people, uh, seeking to share uh, Christ with people, parents and kids. There's our midweek groups that that are reaching out to the young in faith, uh, those running evangelistic courses in their homes. There's Blast and Basement, of course, and many here are involved in that on Friday night, providing a place where the youth can bring their friends. I went on Friday night for the first time. There were two new guys beside me in the soccer game, first time. Isn't that cool? We've got a place like that. That wouldn't happen without a lot of people labouring in the gospel. Then there's all the teams, of course, on Sundays that can make church happen, which is not just about building Christians up. It's about providing a place where the gospel's shared, where you can invite people to come and they can hear about Jesus. And, of course, um, there are those who labour throughout the week. They invite people. They seek chances to talk about God with people, um, some of whom we, we can invite along. And then there's those who... Of course, pray and and do the administration thing. The people on the hall committee, goodness gracious, that's hard. Uh, The people who labour in the leadership teams and and those things, who who keep the place going. Um, This is all labour in the gospel. And this is great grounds for joy because it's partnership. This partnership in the gospel creates Christian community. Because when you know you're working alongside other people, you experience joy. You thank God. God for each other, don't you? It's been a tremendous privilege of me, a new pastor. Uh, it is a privilege to be able to go around and meet people. And if I haven't, I want to meet you <laughs> if I haven't got there yet. Um, it's been a privilege because I've, I've just struck um, lots of very good-hearted people labouring in all their own little way. Maybe I can only get that perspective of what a lot of people are doing. But this is great grounds for partnership, fellowship. Okay. The bonus of this is that when people are labouring in the gospel, it's a sign that their faith in Jesus will last. That verse 6, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. In other words, God's not going to stop his work where it's bearing fruit. You might remember that parable of the sower that Jesus taught about the farmer who sows the seed, which is the word of God, and it falls on different sorts of soils. Uh, to different sorts of effect. Well, where the word of God falls in someone's life and they bear fruit, this is the good soil. And when Paul sees this in the life of the Philippians, this partnership in the gospel, okay, it's grounds for him saying, I can give thanks to God that the work he began in you, he's going to carry it on to completion because you guys are the good soil. All right, if you've been a Christian for a while, you'll know the encouragement it is to see uh, someone who you knew right from the beginning in your early days. Years later, decades later, you might come across them and they're still going strong in the gospel. They still love Jesus as much as they did at the start. They're still serving God joyfully. 
That is a great encouragement when that happens. And we rejoice and we give thanks to God that he is carrying on his work to completion, the work he began in them. So Christians who work together in the gospel, they share great affection for one another. And we do too. Paul says, it's right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. Because whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. And of course, this is the grace that comes to us through Jesus. We hold this in common. This is what gives us joy. But there's further grace, isn't it? The grace of being involved in his work together. And the mutual affection that this engenders. Paul says in his own relationship with the Philippian Christians, God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. That deep affection for one another means that we'll want what's best for one another in our relationship with God. And therefore, this becomes the fuel for very intentional and focused prayer for one another. You know, you want to know what to pray for each other? Paul tells us, uh, verses 9 to 11. But if you work backwards from verse 11, have a look. The end goal in praying is that God would receive the praise and the glory. That happens, verse 10, when we will make it to the day of Christ pure and blameless. That happens when our lives will be filled, um, sorry, will be fruitful in a good way, lives filled with the fruit of righteousness. And that requires that now we are able to discern what's best in our love for each other. Because we don't always get it right, you see, even though we might have the right motive in relating to someone, love, our love can come out sideways and can do damage if it's misinformed or misdirected. And that's why Paul says, verse 9, that our love needs to abound more and more in our knowledge and depth of insight because it takes depth of insight, it takes wisdom to know how to love, actually. And I guess we all have examples in our own lives when we think about it, how unintentionally we may have hurt or harmed other people uh, by not loving them with wisdom. So Paul prays. And if we want to grow in our knowledge of how to love one another properly, that yields the fruit of righteousness on the day of Christ to the glory and praise of God, well, actually, he does tell us what this wisdom is. That's next week, chapter 2. Make sure you're here to listen. But the first reason why Paul has so much cause for joy is their partnership in the gospel with them. Okay, that's his first reason. Them, all right? The second reason is him. What's happening to him? Now, any other person who is in jail, suffering as Paul was, might be tempted to give way to despair or pity. Not Paul. He puts nothing but a positive spin on what's happened. And you think, why on earth does he do this? Is he deluded? What's going on? Well, he wants us to know. Look with me at verse 12. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that's what ha- what's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So his second cause for joy is that the gospel is advancing. That means even in prison he can be joyful. That's what's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel and therefore, as a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard that is about 9,000 people, right? That's the size of the palace guard. 9,000 people, all of them, it's become clear, and to everyone else, that he is in chains for Christ. Now, why does everyone know this? Because no soldier would have encountered a prisoner like Paul. He's in chains, yet he's very joyful. What's going on? 
Um, he's in chains. He's not a murderer. He's not an insurrectionist. He's not a rebel. He's in chains because he can't stop speaking about Jesus, whom he worships as God, Jesus, who was God become flesh, who died on the cross, and who, Paul says, rose, uh, rose to life again, and Paul now worships as the saviour of all the world. Um, this is news, and people are talking about it. So this means rather than the gospel kind of halting in its tracks because of Paul's imprisonment, it's actually done the opposite. It's now spread outwards, and there's a multiplication effect happening because other people are doing the spreading of it. Gentile guards talking to Gentile guards about why Paul's in prison. They're sharing the news. And it's not just them. It's the Christians. Verse 14, because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly because if Paul's going through all of that because of his belief in Jesus, well, it's the least we can do is to speak of the good news. And his suffering emboldens them to do it. So what other people would view as negative, Paul sees as great gain, that the gospel is advancing. Now, of course, he has to concede not everyone has the purest of motives. Verse 15, he says, there are some who are preaching Christ out of envy and rivalry, and we think, who on earth are these people? Well, they're not false teachers because Paul has no tolerance for them. But here are people who, for some impure motives, perhaps to disparage Paul's own name so as to inflate their own, they are preaching Christ as well. Now, if you were Paul, how would you react? They haven't got good intent, but they're doing what you were doing. What would you think about that? If you believe the gospel, the same one that Paul does, that is, it's Jesus who's Lord, not us, then that stops you being precious about yourself. It's very freeing. It's about him, not us. And Paul says, what does it matter? You know, the important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. You see, it, it, it's Jesus and the gospel that he's ambitious for. It's not himself. I find this challenging. Um, for eight years at Trinity City, 2004 to 2012, I ran the morning family gathering in the cinema, which was next door to the church. After we'd been there for five years, we discovered through the grapevine, not through any official means, that another church had renegotiated the full-time lease on the Greater Union Cinema Complex, which we were meeting in, and they were going to take over. And I thought, oh my goodness, we're about to be kicked out by another church. What's going on here? They didn't kick us out. Well, not for the first three years. After that, they did. But for three years then, I was running a church in the basement level and there was another church bigger than ours right above our heads at the same time on Sunday morning. How did I feel about that? Did I feel threatened about that? Now, I couldn't ever go to their services because I was downstairs. I had stuff to do. But if Christ was being preached, no worries. And in fact, after three after sorry three years, yes, then they did kick us out so that they could turn the whole area that we were meeting in three hundred to a, for a skateboard ramp for twenty kids. Um, you know, how do we cope with this? Well, actually, God turned it to good. 
We didn't have enough room at Trinity City, so he prompted us to plant a church despite ourselves. Trinity Inner South at Colonelite Gardens. That began because the edge kicked us out. That church in Colonelite Gardens reached more people than we could have ever in the city. God turned it for good. Because of this, I rejoice. It's not about me, you see, or, or you or any one of us. Think of it another way. Suppose there was another church in Aldgate that had as a stated goal that they wanted to beat us and outgrow us, that they wanted to do more evangelism than we did and have better services and better invitation and better music and all that sort of stuff. How do we deal with that? Well, if Christ is being preached, that's fine. And we'll work hard and they'll work hard, but Christ is being preached. Because it's not about us, it's about him. Paul says, as long as Christ is preached, I rejoice. His experience of joy is centred on Jesus. He's joyful because of, of course, them, the partnership that he shares with other Christians in the work of the gospel. He's joyful for him, even in his hardship, because God turns a terrible situation to Jesus' glory through the gospel advancing. That's a cause for joy. So he's joyful because of them. He's joyful because of what's happened to him. He'll be, he's also joyful of what will happen to him because his confidence that the gospel gives him for the future, for his own future. I think this is the best part of the chapter. This is his reason for his own ongoing joy. Verse 18, he says, Yes, and I will continue to rejoice because I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what's happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. He's not expecting necessarily to get out of prison, even though he speaks of deliverance. Verse 20, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So, did you hear that? Not even death is a downer for him. Christ gives him confidence. One of the historical reasons why Christianity took off like wildfire in the first century was that when Christians were thrown to the lions in the Roman arena, which we think is what happened to Paul, or when they, were, they suffered unimaginable persecutions, like when they were lit with flames while they were still alive, to light Nero's garden. When that happened, Christians died well. They died with confidence and they died with joy and people noticed. And then they thought, they've got something we don't have, confidence in the face of death. This is enormously compelling. Somerset Maugham, the great Catholic writer, said, death for me is a hellish experience. Bertrand Russell, the great English philosopher, said, when I die, I believe I'll rot. Voltaire, the great French philosopher, upon whom is based all our educational theory, he said, when I die, it is a step into the unknown, all terribly pessimistic. By comparison, the words of Christians are so hopeful and positive. Martin Luther's wife, Coretta Scott King, said, they ended my husband's life with one bullet, but not all the bullets in all the arsenals in all the world 
can end his eternal existence because my husband is with God because of Christ. Or John Penry, who was executed in 1596 for attending a non-Anglican service in Wales because he wasn't an Anglican. Back then, this was a capital offence. Because it was like you were against the king or the queen, you see. The night before he died, he said to his wife, in light of his faith in Christ, I have been your husband for a season, but I will be your brother for eternity. At morning tea, someone told me about a Christian in the hills they visited yesterday who has days to live. And when, he left, when they left, they looked at this man and they said, we have to go now. He said, I will see you in heaven. You see, for a Christian, Christ turns death on its head from a hellish unknown to, to something even better than being here. Um, now, there is a folklore going around at the moment, and it is a folklore, it's a lie, that um, when you die, you know, our souls are naturally immortal and we'll go to some better place. You know, he'll be playing a round of golf up in the sky. I'm sure she's cooking in a kitchen looking down on us. You know, he's with his mates. This is a lie. The idea of the immortality of the soul was something that Plato thought up and Disney has made popular today. But you see, even if you go along with that view, if you surveyed the ancient beliefs of the afterlife, it was only Christians who could say that to die was gain. So in Homer's Iliad, Achilles, the great hero played by Brad Pitt in that movie Troy, right? he said of the underworld where he would go that even a poor man on this earth would be better off than the champion of the underworld because it was a step down in your experience. Christians say to die is gain because they have a Lord who has risen from the dead and they know that life means knowing him and that is not ended at death. In fact, it gets better. Paul said, and he's weighing up the options of dying and then being with Christ or staying alive. He says, if I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I don't know. You know, I am legitimately torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. And convinced of this, I know I'll remain. You're my partners. And I'll continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. Now, please hear, Paul is not seriously thinking of suicide, right? but he is, he is facing death. So he's not thinking of killing himself, but he might die. So he's trying, he, it's really in his face. He's trying to decide what is best. And weighing up the alternatives, you know, he would love to depart and be with Christ, because as good as it is on earth, as best as it could be, if he died and went to be with Christ, it would be much better than being here. Better by far. Even now, even before the resurrection, even before he gets a new body, even before the Lord remakes the heavens and the earth, even now, it would be better by far than being here. To be in conscious fellowship with Jesus that gives us joy. That's astounding perspective on life. Do you experience joy? Are you joyful as a person? 
Or is your experience in your life different to that of Paul? There may be good reason. I mean, maybe there's been grief. Depression, that's a joy killer, isn't it? Maybe there's been a breakdown in friendship with people at church which makes coming to church difficult. Actually, we'll deal with that in chapter 4. But for now, it seems to me that most of us are left with the challenge of joy because Paul's experience challenges us. Firstly, is the God we believe in the God of the gospel, the God who wants more than anything the good news of Jesus to advance, even if that means hardship for his children? You know, if he requires of us hard work, you know, sacrifice, do we believe in the God who requires this, the God of the gospel? Um, the God, uh, that, sorry, that the gospel of God really is good news for us, even if we underwent hardship for him. Paul actually believed this, didn't he? I mean, he was in prison and he thought, actually, the gospel's still really good for him. That still gave him a different perspective that was greater than his hardship. Would we believe in that God, the God of the gospel? Uh, are we involved in partnership with him? Okay. Or... Was Paul mad? Was he a deluded martyr? He's different, isn't he? It's challenging. He's the God we believe in, the God of the gospel, the God of good news. Secondly, um, is your current experience that of gospel partnership? You know, in your life, do you actually work to make Jesus known? And I'm talking to Christians here, right? So some of you may not be. Um, but if you are Christians, do you undergo that work? Do you enjoy the fellowship of hard work in labouring for Christ? Because I want to say, if you're not, then you're missing out. You actually are missing out on a great source of joy. It is wonderful to labour in the gospel with other people. Coming up to Christmas, you know, we want to ramp up involvement in the community. We want to ramp up uh, our invitations to Christmas services and carols and things like that. And there'll be a lot of hard work. Um, then next year, you know, we want to kick off really, really well. And, uh, you know, set up courses where people can come and hear about Christ explained more. If you're not a labourer in the gospel, you're missing out. Thirdly, do you experience joy? Do you know the secret of joy? It may be that you don't experience joy because you don't yet have what other Christians have. You don't yet know Christ. Can I say there's joy to be had? Or maybe you do know Christ and you've just become distracted. There's something else that's obscured your view. Your perspective has become out of alignment. Philippians will reset your alignment. My encouragement is that you spend time in Paul's brain, that you live in this letter for a month and you get recalibrated because there's joy to be had. Joy for the taking. Let's pray. Father in heaven, please open our eyes to so know Christ and to value him that we'd be changed as a church and you'd give us a new perspective on all that we go through, whatever hardship it may be, and you'd do your work in us that we would so value you and rejoice in you and rejoice when other people are doing the hard work too. May Paul's experience become ours. In Jesus' name, amen.